0: Let's pray one more time together before we begin, okay? Father, we come before you now and we come to this place, Lord, all coming from different weeks. Lord, we've had different days this week and we all have the same burden. We all need the same thing. We pray that you would impart grace to the hearer today, Lord, and that your spirit would do its work now. Father, that as your word is preached, that our hearts would be encouraged, that your spirit would bring illumination to the truth of Scripture. Help us, Father, open up our hearts. Let us be those whose hearts are laid bare before you, that we don't hold anything back from you, that we would be honest with you, that we would be transparent before our God, that our heart would be laid bare and open to the one who sees and knows everything, we just ask, Lord, that You would encourage us today through these magnificent promises that You've given us in Your Son, Jesus. We pray for Your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we saw in the previous sermon last week, and we dealt with verses 16 to 18, and we saw there the unbreakable nature of God's promise confirmed with an oath. That's an amazing thing to me, not only that God makes a promise, but then God makes a confirming oath, and He binds Himself to that oath so that, as the author goes on to say, it becomes impossible for God to lie. It becomes impossible for God to lie, and the things that God has promised in Christ, because those things are so certain, because those things are unfailing, that means that our hope is also unfailing our hope is unwavering, and our hope is ultimately invincible. That is something that the world sorely needs today. It needs invincible hope. And you think of the things that people hope in, and you realize very quickly that the things that people put their trust and their hope in is going to betray them. But we have a hope, the hope of Israel, We have a hope that will never betray us. As Romans 4 tells us, we have a hope that will never disappoint us because our hope has been poured out in our hearts through Jesus Christ. So we looked at the promise of God's purpose in Christ, verses 16 to 18. And now, today, I want to look at the power of God's hope in Christ. Let me begin by looking back here. You remember the author said there at the end of verse 18, look with me, he set in front of us this hope and he says, lay hold of the hope that is set before us. He gave a strong encouragement, that's the way that he put it. He gave a strong incentive to lay hold and to never let go, in other words, of the hope that is set before us. And now he's going to move on to share with us that we have in a realized way already have come into that very hope because this hope is not just far off in the distant. It's not just an abstract idea that we embrace intellectually. Our hope is real. Our hope is experienced in the here and now So that chapter 3, verse 14 says that we are, if we are trusting, if we are hoping, we are presently, right now, partakers of Christ. This is what's called realized eschatology. Matter of fact, if you turn to chapter 12 very quickly with me, this all will reach a climax by the time we get to chapter 12, this language of realized eschatology, where the author says in verse 22, he says, you have come, present tense, you have come to Mount Zion. Well, if you know anything about Mount Zion, Mount Zion is synonymous with heaven. And so what the author is saying is, in a sense, positionally, because of our status in Christ, we have already arrived, as it were, at Zion. We've already arrived into the city of the living God. We've already arrived to the heavenly Jerusalem and the myriads of angels. And you say, but I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't hear the angels. Yes, and that's because what the author is talking about here is a present reality that is realized by virtue of our union with Christ. Because we are one with Jesus, we can already say that we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. He goes before us physically, but He takes us with Him uh, 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 positionally. Does that make sense? He is there. And because of these things, we have what the author calls in chapter 7, we have a better hope, a better hope than the Old Testament saints even did. And so, he's going to show us this, and in order to do this, he's going to emphasize for us three things. Namely, the author is going to give us the strength of our hope, he's going to give us the eschatology of our hope, and he's going to give us the Christology of our hope. And so, number one, the strength of our hope of our hope. That is, the soul-strengthening nature of our hope. And I want to begin by pointing out two things here. Number one, the soul-strengthening nature of our hope is particular. In other words, it's a particular hope that belongs to the believer. Look at what it says there in verse 19. He says, this hope we have, present tense, which means we, the believer, continually have this hope. It is a continual reality that we have. Now, why do I stop there? I stop there because of the massive reality that many people do not have this hope. And so this hope is not only is it a particular hope, it is indispensable. It is look look with me to the book of Ephesians because the reality is is that prior to Christ we too were devoid of hope. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says, "Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Could there be anything more detrimental to human existence than to say you are without God, without hope, in the world? (laughs) Amazing. Realizing that the word world here speaks of the speaks of the age that we live in, this, 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 um, this present evil age that we're living in, this culture, this, this uh, experience this, in this humanity of this world, this fallen post-Genesis 3 world that we are, if we are in this category, if you are, in other words, not a believer, not regenerate, not blood-bought, not in Christ, not in union with Christ, what this means is that you are exposed to all of the forces of evil and sinful influence in this world. And there is no hope because you don't have God. In an amazing way, these things are almost synonymous. To be without hope is to be without God. To be without God is to be without hope. And therefore, we cannot so quickly step over the massive reality that we have hope But as Thessalonians says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, there are many people who do not have hope. There are many people who weep without hope. And so they have to create a different hope. They have to create a, a sentimental type of hope. They have to create an imaginary hope. They have to create a kind of hope that when someone dies and you don't know where that person is, you begin to utter things that are contrary to reality, like they went to a better place. They're looking down at us now, smiling upon us, right? When, if they are without God, that type of hope is not true. This is why it's so deadly serious. Therefore, our hope is not only... Not only is it invincible hope that I'm talking about today, it's also indispensable hope, indispensable hope. You know, philosophers have often come to the point in their writings, like many of them have, like Burton Russell himself did, where they finally admitted there is no hope. After all their philosophizing, after all their thinking, after all their logical syllogisms, after all of their pontificating and, and musing, they come to the conclusion there's no hope. And that's why uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, God has set aside the wisdom of the world because the world, through its own wisdom, that is, through the wisdom that it's capable of on its own, autonomous to God, guess what? Through that kind of wisdom, you never come to know hope. You never come to know God. So this hope is unique. is discriminatory. But on the other hand, this hope is This is building our hope up. The promises of God being the foundation upon which our hope is built and centered upon Jesus Christ. And while our hope builds, the hope of the wicked fails. Let me read to you Psalm 12. Boy, Psalm 12, what an incredible soul-strengthening psalm. It says, The words of the Lord are pure as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, He says, you, O Lord, will keep them, that is the believer. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut around. They strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. So we have a hope in the context of this kind of hostility. The type of hostility where wickedness is exalted, when vileness is exalted all around. And wouldn't we agree we're living in a time where vileness is exalted and plastered on a magazine for everyone to see. And everybody rushes to praise the unthinkable vileness of what's going on today in American culture. So this is right at our fingertip. This is right at the this is right at the TV. This is right at the click of a button. This is right on the on the local news. This is right around This is all around us. Where are the wicked strutting today? The wicked are strutting in the Middle East. ISIS is strutting. And postmodern, post-Christian America is strutting. Do you know that, do you know that uh, uh, do you know that uh, Christian sociologists now Uh, Men like Albert Moeller, David Wells, many others, the great uh, thinkers of our time, are now speaking of post-Christian America. That is the way they're couching their statements now. We have reached a tipping point in American culture where it is appropriate, historically speaking, to speak of a post-Christian America. In other words, what that means is that not that there's no Christians in America, what that means is that Christianity is no longer an assumption. You can't just assume anymore that you go into a coffee shop or you go into a grocery store or the market and you say, God bless you, that that person knows what you're talking about, namely the Trinitarian God of the Bible. No more. It is no longer acceptable. It's no longer tolerable. And no one can just assume that that is what people have in mind. My wife and I were out uh, last night, and uh, we were out at the Shops of Legacy, and I noticed to my right that Muslims had set up a whole uh, a station out there, uh, a booth, and they were handing out Korans and literature and going around, and what was their message? Because you better believe I went over there. <laughs> what was their message? We have the same God that you have. We believe the same thing that you believe. Well, of course, that didn't work with me, but that works with a lot of people, and it was heartbreaking. As my wife and I were driving away, I looked over, and I saw a couple of Muslim men talking to young, impressionable teenagers, and I know that they're telling them, we believe the same thing that you do. Now, we're in a post-Christian America, all right? Things have changed since the years of Walter Martin. We're at a different stage now. We have reached a tipping point. So he tells us about the particular nature of our hope. This is the hope of the believer. This is the hope of every blood-bought child of God. But he also tells us of the depth of our hope because look at what he says here. This hope, he says, this hope we have as an anchor to the soul. This is how remarkable Scripture is, by the way. Look at the text. I need you to focus on verse 18 and 19 because in verse 19, every time you see the word hope, it is a translation. In other words, it is implied that this is what he's talking about, but the actual Greek word hope, uh, elpidos, does not appear in verse 19. It only appears at verse 18 at the end where he says, take hold of the hope set before us. Therefore, when the author says this hope, that's a translation, it's literally just this we have as an anchor. Now, he's obviously referring to the hope of verse 18, and he says, it is an anchor of the soul, a hope, again, not there, but that's what is implied, a hope both sure and steadfast. But notice the depth of our hope. It is not just a shallow hope. It's not even a tangible thing. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't taste it. You can't touch it. It is a transcendent hope, in other words. It is a spiritual hope. It is a hope that is based on truth. That is what Christian hope is all about. It is a hope to help us to battle these cultural wars that we're in. It is a hope that's going to sustain us and keep our faith sure and steadfast and unwavering in the midst of the sea. Because, of course, he uses the language of an anchor. And so, not only is it deep within us, in our soul, in our heart, in our spirit, that place, not only that no man sees, but that no one can touch. So it's good news because it's something that God has deposited inside of us. He's given us His Spirit as a promise, as a pledge, as a guarantee of the redemption to come. But thirdly, he also points out the strength of our hope because he uses the he uses the metaphor the nautical metaphor of an anchor. You know in ancient literature the ancient man would use the word here, anchor, he would use it to talk about the strength and stability of an idea, of a thought, of a philosophy, of a tradition. So it's a very common metaphor that it, was, it, would, it would give your philosophy strength and stability. It would give you strength and stability in your worldview, in other words. And uh, that's exactly what it is for us. Our Christian hope stabilizes and it strengthens our Christian worldview. Now, three things I want to point out that can be deduced from this metaphor. Number one, as I mentioned, stability. Stability, why? Because in Christ and through Christ, we are delivered from the instability of life in this world, from all of its uncertainties, its dysfunctions, and its errors, theological errors, moral errors, uh, ethical errors, We're delivered from that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 and 15 speak of this. It talks about the fact that we are no longer to be children tossed around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of scheming men. We are stable in Christ. We have a sound mind. We have the mind of Christ. This anchor keeps us grounded, keeps us on the right way, the right path, the only path as we travel through this strange land as aliens and sojourners. And if you have not yet gotten in touch with your alien status in this world, this culture is making it very, very, it's going to be very, very quick before we realize, oh, we're aliens in this place. We do not belong here. We do not belong here. So much so that Peter will say, the world will be surprised, shocked. They will be utterly shocked that you don't see what Bruce Jenner did as a beautiful, wonderful thing. See, this this, this is what we're facing today. This is where we're going. It's not just going to keep us stable, however. It's also going to keep us safe. That is what an anchor does. When a ship is out to sea and you throw your anchor overboard, you are safe. I remember many, many years ago, I went on a a fishing trip to Catalina off the coast of of California. Well, it was a beautiful day. It was a day like any other sunny day in California, except that on the way home, we encountered 20-foot swells. And for an hour and a half, we had to drive through, not drive through, but uh, we had to go through these swells on this boat, and guess what we had to do to survive? It's a true story. We had to run to the side of the boat every time the swell came because the boat literally got to the tipping point of capsizing. So the whole crew and the people who paid to go on this fishing trip have to go and hang on to the side of the boat just to keep the boat from going, you know, falling over from the, how big these swells were. I was terrified for my life, and I wish we had an anchor. I wish we had something that would have kept us stable at that point. That's exactly how life is, isn't it? Have you ever been there before? A medical condition will put you right there. A stressful situation in your house, in your marriage, in your family will put you right there at the tipping point. And if you do not have an anchor, the swells of tribulation will throw you overboard. And so Jesus Christ keeps us safe from the ocean of sinful hostility that we are exposed through all week long. All week long. We need the anchor. We need the anchor to keep us safe from two things. The outward, yes, but let's be honest today, brethren, we need Him to keep us safe from the inward threats as well. We need Him to keep us safe from the storms of unbelief and apostasy, from wandering, from wavering from those influences in our own, the impulses of our own heart that betray us and try to pull us away from our final destination. That is what this anchor is all about. Keeping your eye on the prize. Not only safe, not only stable, but lastly, secure. Because we are also fixed and anchored in Christ from the changing tides the changing tides of the soul destroying influences that are heaped upon us in spiritual warfare spiritual warfare paul talks about this in ephesians chapter 10 or excuse me ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 he talks about the fact that we are in a war against what spiritual forces of wickedness and so we have a spiritual anchor to keep us solid now let's move on from just the, 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 the strength of our hope to the eschatology of our hope because this is where the author goes. He moves away from the nautical metaphor and then he moves to the cultic metaphor of the sanctuary. By cultic, I mean religious. Look at what he says. This hope, this hope that we have, it enters within the veil. Wow. You guys, I don't know if you understand, but what he just did is he just said something so profound here that all of redemptive history is bound up in this little phrase, what he just said. This hope of ours takes us within the veil. Now, within the veil, now that is as spiritual as you can possibly get. Because within the veil is talking about the very very, uh, presence of God. You're talking about now the tabernacle, the temple. You're speaking of the holy place. But this is what's even more remarkable, my friends, is that he's no longer talking about the type. So follow with me. Speaking about being within the veil, the author here, he's pulling from Old Testament imagery, no question about it but he's no longer talking about the physical things. He's no longer talking about the the holy place where there was a physical curtain, where behind that curtain there was an ark, there was a mercy seat, there was tablets of stone, there was the imagery of the cherubim. But now he's talking about the reality. He's moved beyond the things that are made with hands, and now he's talking about their antitypical reality, which means what? You have the type, and then you have the antitype to which the type corresponds. Isn't it amazing what God was doing with Moses when, it's, when God tells Moses in Exodus, Moses, be sure that you make this according to the pattern that I'm gonna show you because that pattern we now find out from the book of Hebrews was actually the pattern that was rooted and grounded in the heavenly sanctuary remarkable when you start wrapping your brain around this what God was doing I always thought as a young Christian reading, you know, trudging through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and and, and going through all of the measurements of the temple and why do I need to learn about how long the curtains are and (laughs) the rings and how many in the poles and how long? And the simple answer to that is Jesus Christ. The long answer to that is you better go to the Emmaus Conference this year where we develop all of these things. But it is truly amazing to think about that the antitypical reality to which these earthly vestiges represent speak of the very throne room of God, upon which the throne of grace that God is sitting upon, to the myriad of angels that surround the throne, to Jesus Christ, our high priest, who is now seated at the right hand of God and lives forever to make intercession for us there as our priest. The remarkable thing about the book of Hebrews is that actually, you do need a priest. And the priest that you need is the high priest, Jesus Christ. He is your mediator. And besides that, he's the only priest that you need because he is the only mediator between God and man so that the believer is connected now through Christ because our hope in Christ, now goes within the veil. We are connected to the very glory of God, God's presence, the very residence of God Himself, where He resides. It is even appropriate with human language to talk about that, where God resides. Where at one point, you remember if you read anything out of Leviticus or Numbers or The glory cloud would be present in the holy place where the priest would go and where he would minister. And what did the smoke represent? But it represented God's all-consuming presence and the fact that that glory cloud will consume all flesh that draws near to it without atonement. And now, fathom this, now that same glory represents The place where we belong. This is now where we belong. This is where Christ has gone and we are connected to Him. And so this is our home now is that glory cloud, what that represented. The place of soul-satisfying beauty and worship, unimaginable, unspeakable. This, is, this means that our hope connects us even now to heaven through our union with Christ. Look at chapter 7, beginning in verse 18, because this is why he'll go on to describe our hope as better. It is better. Why is it better It is better because as New Covenant believers, now that we're in the New Covenant, we no longer have the types and shadows that we have to go through. Now we go directly to the throne of grace, chapter 4, verse 16 of Hebrews. But here, look at what he says in verse 18. He says, on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment. That's talking about the Old Covenant. Because of its weakness and its uselessness. In what way is the Old Covenant useless? Look at he explains it. For, verse 19, the law made nothing perfect. That means the law did not achieve God's eschatological purposes. The law, as we're going to go on to find out, did not perfect the worshiper. And it says, on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. What does it mean to go within the veil? This is what it means. Acceptance with God. Reconciliation with God. Propitiating God. It means justification. It means glorification. And ultimately, it means peace with God. That's what it means. Is it any wonder then that at the end of the book of Revelation, the ultimate exclamation point that is said there in Revelation is that the dwelling place of God is with men. Well, where does the language of the dwelling place of God come from? It comes from the tabernacle. And so we're in tabernacle language here. And so what is this pointing to? This is saying that one day, because Jesus has gone ahead of us, one day we will go with Him. And what is the net result of it all? Is God dwelling amidst His people. And the heavenly sanctuary, as Gerhardus Voss says. And I've been trying to read more of Voss. He's hard to read because everything he wrote was, he was Dutch. And so everything is a translation of Voss. But this is what he says. He says, in the mind of God, all earthly apparatuses employed are purely symbolic. So everything on earth has a heavenly antitype that it was representing, and that is the burden of Hebrews chapter 9. To show you this earth heaven dualism and this correspondence of everything that was going on under the, the first covenant and how it corresponds not to something else on earth, but to something in heaven. That's why it's important for the book of Hebrews to say Jesus passed through the heavens to reach the reality, the reality of what you and I are going to. So let's look now, not just at the Christology, the, the, the eschatology continues, but now He goes to the Christology of our hope. So the Christological nature of our hope, two things here are spoken. Number one, Jesus is our trailblazer. Look at verse 20. Within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. If you wrap your mind around this, this is is why this is important for your hope. Where does hope come from? Where do you you get the, the, the ability, the power, the strength to lift your eyes up again when you're down and you can't seem to even lift your head anymore? Where does it come from? It comes from this that someone has not just gone ahead of you, right? It's not just that Jesus went to heaven to leave us now. He doesn't just leave us, but He leads us. He is our leader. Earlier on, uh, Hebrews called Him our captain. And here, He is being called our forerunner, our trailblazer. trailblazer. Here, this Greek word just literally means running. That's what the word means, Running. Jesus is running. The remarkable thing is this who pair Hamon for us on behalf of us. In other words, he's running ahead of us, leading a pack of people into the presence of God. That's why Jesus passed through the heavens. He passed through the heavens in order to open heaven to us. As our forerunner, He went ahead of us to obtain redemption. I want to show you this. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll be there just for a second to point out a couple of things. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, Where did he appear? He appeared not in the earthly temple, not in the earthly tabernacle. The earthly temple, don't you remember what Jesus said about the earthly temple? Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. (laughs) This temple, God is going to destroy this temple. I'm not talking about this temple, right? And in 70 AD, what happened? Boom! The temple was destroyed. When was Hebrews written? Probably right before that happened. Right before 70 A.D., probably 68, Hebrews is written. And right after Hebrews is written, right after these initial readers read what the book of Hebrews is talking about, when in their minds all they can think about, because remember these are Jews, Hebrews, these are Jews, and all they can think about is temple, temple, temple. And God emphatically reduces the temple to rubble. So that to show them that's not the temple I'm talking about, people. I'm talking about a heavenly temple. I'm talking about heaven itself. That's what he's going to go on to say. Heaven itself. Just remarkable to me. Remarkable how emphatic he does that. Think about yourself. I've told you this before, right? They tell you this when you visit Israel and you go to the temple mount. You you realize that the temple is made out of limestone, which means it's white, and at night the temple would be illuminated so go you know rewind back to the time of you know the time of the dynasty the time of the of, of the kings and think of the solomonic temple being built there and think about the limestone going 10 stories into the sky and think about the fact that it's also built on a mountain well in israel a mountain is really a little hill even still better than texas but it's a hill it is a hill, but it's not a mountain, it's not Everest, it's not, you know, that kind of thing. But it is, a it is a mound, and the temple is there. And let's say you lived in the diaspora, you're a young Jewish man or a young Jewish woman, and for the first time in your life, your parents are bringing you to the temple to worship Yahweh, and you've never seen it before, and here you come over the Brook Kedron, and you go down into the valley there, and, and, and all of a sudden... Appearing before you is this massive thing coming out of the sky, lit up. Let's say you came in the evening. You'd see this white, glorious temple rising up into the sky, ten stories up and on top of a hill. And yet, God says, not that temple. The temple I'm talking about is not ten stories high. It is an infinite space. (laughs) It is of infinite space. It is of infinite dimension because it is the dwelling place of God. What was the temple to represent? The temple was representing heaven. And so when they went into the temple, guess what was all over the walls? Angels, cherubim. There was all these vestiges of heavenly glory. Reminding the people that the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Where is the house you will build for me, God says. There is not a building on earth that can contain God. As a matter of fact, Hebrews will go on. One day God is going to shake the very heavens. Shake the heavens. There will be a cosmic upheaval And I think at the second coming, when Christ returns, it will be a cosmic of evil, cataclysmic proportion resulting in a new heaven and a new earth. Incredible. Incredible. I know some of you are gauging my timing of all of that. Look at what he says. He says, When Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands... That is to say, not of this creation. And he uses the word ketisis, not cosmos. It's more than that. It's not just the earth. It's not just the sky. It's not just the galaxy. It's the entire creation. There is nothing in creation that corresponds to what God is doing in heaven. It's 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 incredible. He says, and not through the blood of goats or calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. This is where that language comes from, that Jesus procures our eternal redemption, and then He applies it to us. Look at verse 24 of chapter 9. Because our forerunner is our mediator, our priest, He, he doesn't just obtain the redemption, He applies it to us, and He also represents us to God. The author already talked about this, but look at verse 24 of chapter 9. For Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, and this is as emphatic as it gets, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Do you believe that right now in the presence of God there is a representative for you? There is a mediator who stands there on your behalf. There's a priest who's interceding for you. It's not something you feel, brothers and sisters. It is something that you know. Because when your feelings are gone, your knowledge remains. Thank goodness it's not on feelings, right? Because my feeling, I don't know about you, maybe you guys are just more spiritual. My feelings, woo, up and down, woo, depending on what kind of day I'm having. But I need something constant. I need an anchor. And the anchor is not emotionalism, the anchor is doctrine. The truth that there is in heaven itself Jesus Christ who is appearing on my behalf in the presence of God. He's not just a forerunner, therefore, he is also a perfect mediator for us. Look at how the verse ends back in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 20, at the end there, it says here that he not only is a forerunner for us, but he says this is is how he's our forerunner, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now go back to chapter 5, verse 10, and look at the word Melchizedek. Because what you're looking at here is, biblically speaking, exegetically speaking, this is sort of uh, two bookends. This is what's called an inclusio, where the author is now closing off one section that he started with, or he left off back at chapter 5, verse 10, and now he's going to launch us into a new section, piggybacking on verse... 20 here of chapter 6 because chapter 7 now he begins to delve into what does it mean for Jesus to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek what is the significance of all of that well the simple point of it all is that his his priesthood is unending and if his priesthood is unending that means his priesthood is unfailing and if his priesthood is unfailing that means that our hope is invincible that's what it means That's what it means. Jesus cannot lose his status as high priest. He intercedes for us forever, chapter 7, verse 25. He represents us to God, chapter 9, verse 24. He sanctifies us, chapter 10, verse 10. He ministers to us as a new covenant church, chapter 8, verse 6. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That is what our hope is built on. Our hope should give us great cause for rejoicing, great security and zeal and passion for His glory. Not just because of everything we talked about. Let me give you a couple other reasons why. You ready? Another 45 minutes? No, I'm just joking. Number one, our hope is historical. It is rooted and grounded in the historical truth that Jesus Christ of Nazareth died on the cross and on the third day rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God. We have a historical faith. And it is also revelatory, meaning it is built on the promises of God, sealed with God's oath. And, oh, my friends, how is our hope revocable in any way? Any any circumstance whatsoever, anywhere imaginable, anywhere in which our hope no longer applies. Well, I guess it would be this, that we don't take heed to the word that is spoken to us. That we have an evil and unbelieving heart falling away from the living God. But if you are in Christ, if you are in Him, if you are genuinely regenerated, then what that means is that your hope is invariant. It's unchanging. It's inflexible. It will never end. It's unending. It is infinite. It is sure. You build your whole life on it. You see how practical Hebrews is to the gospel. This is the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus has done it all. There's nothing left for us to do except love Him and worship Him and serve Him and obey Him and give Him our life to the last drop of sweat and blood, if that's what it means. Because He's done it all for us. He's gone ahead of us, which means He's going to pull us with Him. One of the other things on a practical level that can make this hope diminishable, not the reality of it, but maybe the experience of it, is that you love your life too much in this world, is that you love your experience as a stranger and a sojourner and a pilgrim. Did you notice something about my sermon today? Not one mention about you pulling yourself up by your own moral bootstraps. Not one mention about you're good enough and you're strong enough and boy, you know, God's just your biggest cheerleader. He's, he's the cheerleader in the sky. He's rooting you on. He watches all your YouTube videos. He's on Facebook following you around. He's on Twitter and he can't wait to see what you post. Well, in one sense, that's true because he wants to keep you accountable. But this is our hope that's built on Christ. It's not our own hope. We don't give ourselves hope. We don't don't need to be dreaming about ourselves. In other words, our hope is Christocentric to the core. To the core. And so if you need practical encouragement, as the old Puritans would say, ten looks to Jesus Christ, one look at yourself. That's it. That's it. And if you gaze upon Him, if you you contemplate his, His life, if you contemplate His cross work, the life and work of Jesus Christ, by contemplating those truths, by praying that in, meditating on that, beholding how great a salvation that will give any child of God hope. And hope that will endure for eternity not just for one season of life brothers and sisters but for eternity that's what i'm going to pray for you father god i pray for us now that as we go through seasons of life that are so discouraging at times seasons of life where maybe we're filled with fear and anxiety disappointment may our hope transcend our circumstances, and may we, by faith, look to Christ, keep our eyes on Christ, look away from ourselves, and look to the only source of true hope, lasting hope, which is our forerunner, our mediator. What a perfect Savior we have. Thank you. We ask that you would increase our faith and help us to believe these things for the good of our souls, Lord, and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen.